Uh, what's up, ladies and gentlemen? I'm here with uh, Dr. Tommy Wood, if you don't know about him. Uh, he's up in Seattle, Washington. He's a double doctor. He's an MD, PhD, super fancy. Uh, not, not, only, uh, not only a colleague, but also, also a good friend. He's British, so I'm sure that you will enjoy his voice. Uh, you'll listen to this repeatedly just to hear him talk, um, as will I. And so the, what we're on tap for today is, is why I wanted to, to have Tommy on the show, and this is probably going to end up being Tommy's show as well. Uh, hopefully he'll be able to inter- interview some people from Bro Research. Um, and so what we're going to talk about today is this conundrum that had me down the PubMed rabbit hole for days. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, and so there, you have non-insulated and non-insulin mediated glucose uptake, which is about 1.6 and whatever units people don't care about. And then you have insulin mediated glucose uptake, which is, which is like the basal glucose appearance. So like your liver is always producing glucose, whether people like it or not, even if you're keto, your liver is still producing glucose. And that's, that looks to be about like 1.96. So the amount of basal endogenous glucose that you're producing is more than you can uptake without insulin. Do you want to, so we always need insulin, right? And so you want to talk about that? Yeah, it's when when you think about what I think it's really important to think about what insulin does. So so you're right. When you look at these, they're basal fasting levels in um, healthy but not necessarily um, stacked or you know our kind our kind of uh, people um, subjects. And about you know fifteen to twenty percent of basal glucose intake uptake requires insulin. And so that's, that immediately tells you that's not that much of the total, which kind of flips what a lot of people think about insulin uh, and, and what it does. So, you know, if you're fasted, the major, vast majority of insulin that's taken up uh, into cells in the body, you know, particularly skeletal muscle, uh, does not require insulin. So you do require some, but it doesn't require that much. And when you start thinking about the big picture here, uh, part of the problem um, as I see it with, with some of these studies, is they use what we call the, the um, hyperinsulinemic glycemic clamp, which is basically, if we then shut, if we, you know, with this starting um, insulin glucose metabolism, if we then shove in a load of glucose and a load of insulin, how much extra glucose can we start to push into cells? And that's, that's basically saying that's because insulin's main job is to push glucose into cells. But you already know that's not the case because most glucose uptake uh, into cells in the basal like fasting state doesn't require insulin. And the reason for that is that insulin does a whole load of other things before it starts pushing glucose into cells. So the first thing it does when it's released is it acts on cells in the pancreas to suppress glucagon release. Glucagon being, you know, the hormone that signals to increase gluconeogenesis in the liver, um, you know, increase uh, uh, the breakdown of, uh, tish- of uh, fat tissue and, and protein to try and supply that process. Um, so first thing it does is suppress that, then it goes to the liver, insulin does, and it suppresses um, uh, gluconeogenesis as well. So it tells the liver it doesn't need to make as much glucose because some is coming into the, into the body. And then it goes and it suppresses uh, the breakdown of tissue. So 
it it will go and it will stop lipolysis um, and then it will stop proteolysis in the muscles and and that happens at about an order of magnitude so 10 times less roughly than is required to start stimulating glucose uptake into cells so insulin's main job is anti-catabolic i call it which is kind of like a bit of a weird term but it's not or anabolic. So people think of insulin as being anabolic. And it might be if you're an assisted athlete and you're hyperphysiological, insulin might be anabolic, but its main job is to stop the breakdown of fat and protein um, to which would then fuel the production of glucose in the liver. So when you're looking at these studies, um, the whole kind of way of looking at it is is already dominated by this thought that the main job of insulin is to push glucose into cells but in reality it's not and i think when you start going down the rabbit hole of figuring out where stuff is coming from and going um then i think that's where a lot of the discrepancy lies because there's all these other roles that are going on that aren't being taken into account and so what happens when so say you or i or someone who is well muscled like we eat a hundred grams of carbohydrates which isn't honestly that much right like yeah. if i if i eat a hundred carbohydrates in a mixed meal i'm gonna i'm my insulin's probably gonna pop up to yeah. you know a hundred millimolar something like that maybe i don't know what do you I'd think probably what things happen there yeah it will probably be uh, I mean, depending on the, the composition of the meal, it, it would probably be, yeah, something like that. So it increases, you know, 10 to 20 fold. And if you're healthy, it's going to be, you know, below five or six to, to start with. And the, you're right. So the, the first part is, like I talked about earlier, is to go and regulate all those other hormones, those other, other processes, stop the breakdown. And then the extra that you get is then required to, to do the, the last bit of nutrient partitioning of glucose, of glucose into cells. So it is, definitely, um, it is definitely required. And we know that some insulin is required all times. And the, you know, there's a number of ways to look at that we know that type access into cells but then also regulating gluconeogenesis and the breakdown of, of tissues like we talked about um and i've lost the point of what i was talking about but that's uh <laughs> that's essentially it what's the next question <laughs> so i'm going to share my screen real quick because i i think that this stuff is pretty hard for people to get a handle on yeah um so this is this is a graph of, and this graph is from 1988 and so you can see that this is fasted and so the endogenous appearance of glucose is this is essentially this number, this nine number. Yeah. And then and then you have they're gonna introduce one gram per kilogram of glucose. So if you weigh 80 kilos, you're getting 80 grams of glucose. Uh, and so then you can see that this endogenous production just goes blam. So that's essentially insulin doing its job of saying, hey knock down glucagon, stop producing more glucose, liver, stop producing more endogenous glucose, correct? Yeah. yeah. And then you have this glucose appearance in the bloodstream, which seems to top out at about 30 to 60 minutes. Yeah. And then with that, you have this really weird graphical analysis of this. Um, 
but the fact that they look that we're looking at this in like around when I was born is pretty cool. Um, and so this plasma insulin's not even going that high in these people. It's popping to about 30 yeah. and then if their plasma glucose does go up pretty high. This is probably like what, like 160. Um, it's still not crazy. But then if we look at some of this data that we pull in from, these are the only two real studies that we have from athletes. And so I don't even know that I would call these people have no history of participating in any regular exercise program. Right. And so this is them getting about 50 grams of glucose and about 30 grams of protein. And you can see their plasma insulin levels are, they're not even going down. Yeah. So for a, for somebody after, you know, it's, it's, that's kind of a small mixed meal to not come down within like an hour or two that tells me that these people probably aren't that metabolically healthy because you'd, so, six you'd, hours expect, later. you'd expect that to come. I mean, you'd expect that to have come down by then. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if, so if we go to the, if we go to this craft thing with, this is Tommy sent me this um, earlier. So we would essentially, this is a hundred gram sample. So this is, and they want to see that two hour plus three hour sum be less than 60. If we go back up here, these dudes are, they're at no way. Yeah, not even close. Not even close. And so, and then, so these guys, they're, that's not really a healthy population. So the two studies that we have looking at this post-exercise, and this is post-exercise, and these exercise programs are like three sets of 10, right? And so this is another one where they pound, this is pounding them with 120 grams of either maltodextrin, um, honey, or sucrose, and then 40 grams of protein. After nine exercises, three sets of 10, and, and they didn't give us body fat percentages on these people, but this is a little bit better. Yeah. A little bit better. So they, they pop in the, the stipulations for this study where they had to be training for a year. Uh, it was a male and female mix. So the 120 grams of honey, like that's a lot of honey, especially for like a 50 kilo female. Um, and so this is all average data. And here they're not even popping over 126 on a blood glucose. So these, these people seem a little bit more trained. But and then where are they at? They're back down. They're about sixty at one twenty. So what do you what are you thinking with this? Yeah, this is much better and probably much closer to the population that that we'd be thinking about. Um, large amounts of glucose disposal in in large humans, uh, well trained humans, and there's um, and you can see that the blood glucose responds really nicely. The peak is isn't that high, um, and it comes down within an hour. That's definitely what I'd expect to see. And the the insulin tail is kind of longer than expected. But if you look at where they're starting out, they're definitely under ten. Um, so yeah, this is probably you know closer to to the kind of response that we'd see um, in people with a good amount of muscle mass in the sort of post exercise window. So. This is, this is kind of the big thing that, that came up for me is, are we worried about, so I've had, I got CGM data up the, up the wazoo of guys who are staying between, you know, 90, even in 120 the whole day, and they're pounding 500, 600 grams of carbohydrates. So their blood glucose is, is really between, you know, five and six, almost the whole day, if we're talking, if we're talking millimolar. And, but I have no idea what's happening with their insulin. Yeah. So, and, and most people use CGM as a proxy of insulin because if, if you're thinking, and again, most people use using CGM outside of diabetes, they're using it because they're interested in long-term health. 
uh, rather than long-term jackness, which might be what you're using it for. Um, and so the, they use glucose as a proxy of insulin. And like you can, you can immediately see here, they don't necessarily go together. Uh, but if you're thinking about long-term health implications, uh, spikes of less than 30, definitely less than 50 milligrams a deciliter, you know, that puts you in really good shape. So you can be, you can eat as many carbs as you like. And if your glucose excursions are smaller than that after a meal, uh, you know that you're doing minimal damage in terms of metabolic and long-term health. So not to get into like the, the whole CGM glucose glycemic variability, we don't want to go there right now. We could maybe, because that's a different, that's not, that's a different question um, yeah. from a long-term health perspective. So if, if we already have these people who are extremely glucose regulated, like they're able to take, they're very metabolically flexible. They already be able to take copious amounts of glucose and, and take care of it with insulin. We're not necessarily worried about that insulin spike of probably around a hundred every day or at, like multiple times per day, most likely. Yeah. Um, that's, it's really difficult to, to know uh, because nobody's really looked at it, right? Most people just look at glucose. You know, if you're doing an, uh, an oral glucose tolerance test, maybe somebody measures insulin at the same time. That's where those craft patterns come from. At the same time, we have no idea about the other things that are, you know, are floating around in terms of energy availability and hormones. So you don't know glucagon levels and the, the ratio of insulin to glucagon is also pertinent here. Um, you don't know about free fatty acids. You don't know about lactate ketones, which are also, which are going to be important, particularly in the post-exercise window. And that the total energy load floating around the body might also have some, some effect in terms of um, what's happening at the cellular level. So free fatty acid, metab you know, if you're turning those into acetyl-CoA via beta oxidation, you know, that will inhibit uh, glucose metabolism, ketones potentially the same if you're taking exogenous ketones, which some people might be, that seems to spare glucose, uh, which might be one of the reasons why endurance athletes see a performance benefit from it. So all of those things interact and, you know, nobody's measuring those. So, mm -hmm. you know, those insulin spikes, uh, in so I think they, they're definitely going to be smaller in somebody who's A, metabolically healthy and B, um, is able to produce more uh, non-insulin mediated glucose uptake and that's because they have a activated uh, glute 4 through the exercise they've done and they have more skeletal muscle tissue for that to go into those glucose spike those insulin spikes are going to be smaller so all of those things are mitigating the potential downstream effects um, and hopefully we're going to look into you know, some of the possibilities there and i think you'll see smaller insulin spikes in people who are bigger and then have you know performed some kind of exercise and that includes you know continuous movement throughout the day it's not just the the post-workout window where you've been in the gym yeah i think that to me just that continuous getting enough movement throughout the day is probably really really important for dissipating that uh glucose just moving around yeah. the so i wanted to kind of stay on that topic for a little bit longer before we get into the fact that we have this thing in, in the health world right now, like if you, the best time to eat like all of your cupcakes is af, is immediately after you, like if you're going to cheat, right? If you're going to cheat, make it, direct, <laughs> make it right after your shitty workout that you did for 10 minutes. Right. Yeah. Uh, no, but like for real in our, in our, in our sphere and some of the guys that I work with, like they're crushing, you know, a 90 minute workout that is, is legit. We're talking, you know, 30 sets 
and and then maybe they're eating 200 grams of gummy bears or something like that because they they have to legit eat eat, you know 800 grams of carbohydrates just to not lose weight um and so do we do we think well i guess we just don't know because we don't have the data uh, to see if the we have, and we're probably never going to know if those if you you know pounding insulin up is is that bad over the long term. We're probably never going to know. Yeah, the the only way that you could really look at that, where you have to look at long term long term health outcomes, uh, and you could certainly do things in these guys like say look at a coronary artery calcium score, right? That's going to tell you something about we know glycemic variability and and persistently elevated high insulin levels are associated with disruption of the glycocalyx and epithelial dysfunction, uh, endothelial dysfunction. So that's all going to predispose you to some kind of atherosclerotic changes. So you could certainly look at those things in those guys. But this is, again, you know, this is over months or years that this, this is going to accumulate. It's not necessarily something you can figure out straight away in terms of whether it's detrimental. Uh, however, you know, you and I have talked about previously, both in person and on various podcasts, that there is obviously a point of diminishing returns in terms of like how stacked you are. And at some point, if we want to be more bigger and more stronger, um, you know, we may take a bit of a hit in terms of like, what's the absolute optimal in terms of long-term health, but that's because we want to look super sexy in the mirror. So, you know, we'll sort of balance those things out and it will probably be good for us in the long term. Yeah. The, the idea that training and longevity are kind of together, I think is, is not necessarily the, the truth i think it's like if you're if you love this it's okay to love this thing but don't think that this don't get confused and think that you're training because you're going to live forever like you're not um and so i would agree i don't i don't think anybody's going to answer this question i think answering this question is very hard to the the thing that gets me is most people like when we're bulking in in terms in inside of like this evidence-based fitness culture they're going to probably bulk you on – they're going to keep fats fairly low. I, I would say probably 80, 90 grams per day, somewhere, somewhere maybe around 100. In comparison to when you're eating like 4,000 calories, it's not a lot. And, yeah. then, and then they're going to keep protein at you know probably 1.8, 2.0 grams per kilogram. And then they're going to pick up the rest from carbohydrates. And, and the thought process there being it's going to be harder to turn carbohydrates into fat than fat into fat. And yeah. we're probably talking percentage points there, but that's, that's the play. And I think that that play is, is maybe not the best idea. What, what, what's your take on that? So in terms of the absolute trying to put on lean mass, um, and then forgetting about any, um, any other long-term effects that might come from excess glucose spikes and instant release and all that stuff. Um, I think that's probably the safest way to, to minimize fat gain. And, and the reason for that is that most of the fat on your ass came from fat that you ate. Um, and we know that because we've looked at people's diets and then we've taken subcutaneous fat biopsies and looked at the composition and they're, and they're very similar. Um, there's, they've also done some carbohydrate overfeeding studies. Um, and what happens is, particularly when you're, you know, maybe one, 2,000 calories over your, your caloric requirements, um, and it's, but it's pure carbohydrate, 
you will increase, you'll keep increasing metabolism and most of that extra carbohydrate is burned off. Very little of it in the metabolically healthy person goes towards de novo lipogenesis. And when they've done these studies, they basically have to reevaluate, they reevaluate basal metabolic rate every few days and they have to keep adding more and more bagels just to like keep the same caloric excess. Like, that, that there's, uh, there's a, it was published back in the New England Journal of Medicine. Again, it was back in the 60s or 70s, back when scientists could do whatever they wanted and nobody complained. Um, and those guys basically just could not eat enough bagels to stay in caloric excess if they were only overeating carbohydrate. Um, so if you're, you know, for fat gain, you, you need the caloric excess, but a mixed diet makes that a lot easier in terms of fat gain. So if you're just thinking about... Um, you're just, just thinking about mass gain. You're not worried about some of the glycemic effects. Um, then minimizing fat intake and maximize, and using carbohydrates as the main caloric level, I think, is, 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 the, best, is the best play uh, for those reasons. Um, whether that's the best in terms of long-term health, um, we don't know. I would, yeah, I would agree. And in the, in the, what, what Eric Helms and I talked about on, on the last episode is that it probably doesn't matter the, the amount of your excess calories. Like, it doesn't matter whether you're – for bulking, it probably doesn't matter whether you're at a thousand or you're at a hundred. From a muscle protein synthesis standpoint, it probably just matters that you're in excess. So you're just trying to yeah. find you're just trying to find that level of carbohydrates that gets you in that excess and then push it, uh, which yeah. is a, which is a hard thing to do. Like you're going to get appetite regulation. You're, you know, eventually you want to stop eating bagels. I'm sure those guys hated bagels. <laughs> uh, and 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 so that's. We don't know. And the answer is anyone who's listening to this and, and you're hearing us talk, we have no idea if that is going to be bad for you long-term. You're, you're nowhere close to your personal fat threshold from a metabolic disease standpoint. You're managing yeah. body comp. You know, you're, you're exercising. You're doing all these other things where we wouldn't think that you would be, become metabolically dysregulated. But we just don't know if you pounding that insulin hammer you know, five times a day, is that, is that going to result in anything? I don't know. Um, yeah, the, um, yeah. One of the one of the main regulators of your global insulin sensitivity is the amount of fat you have relative to the amount of fat your body can um, health healthfully handle, and that's partly genetically t- determined. And it's also partly determined by systemic inflammation, gut health, all that kind of stuff. Um, so if you're still within that limit, so you haven't gained a huge amount of extra adipose tissue. Um, yeah, you, you'll 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 stay metabolically healthy while you keep adding the carbohydrates, um, and yeah. So whether there's any downstream effects elsewhere, because we know that you know having excess glucose floating around probably isn't a good idea. It's very tightly regulated for a reason. Uh, but if you're trying to prevent fat gain whilst gaining maximum mass, not thinking about those other things, then then yeah, that's that's definitely the way I'd do it. And, and if you're listening to this, you can measure kind of your glucose excursions with a finger stick. Like you could just measure yourself, you know, every 30 minutes. Most people only have like certain carbohydrates that they consume anyways. Like you probably have four or five different carbohydrate sources. You just check that with a finger stick. And if you're not driving your glucose up 30 to 50 points from where you are, you're probably fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause and- you're, you're going to be, you're disposing of that pretty quickly. So, so the, the glucose isn't staying high or isn't going that high and isn't staying high for that long. So that's the best metric that we have that's easily accessible for, for most people. I'm going to share this back because this is kind of like, this is one of the scariest things to me. Is so when you take 
bros who train and who have a ton of muscle and can take, you know, copious amounts of gummy bears. And then the general population gets a hold of this and they're like, oh, if I'm going to eat gummy bears, I might as well eat them after I train. Right. And so, <laughs> and, and it is true. Like if we look at this for more, like their glucose uptake, their insulin sensitive glucose, glucose uptake is going to get an insulin resistant subjects. And these people are like, their insulin resistant subjects are terrible. Like they're, you know, they're 33% body fat. Like these, these guys are dysregulated. And then, but they're insulin sensitive subjects. Like, this is what got me. They're twenty six percent body fat. Like these, <laughs> like, like they're not. Like this is. I would I would categorize that not as insulin sensitive, but as normal. And so you're seeing about a five, even with insulin resistant subjects after, during. And this is like moving one leg in an MRI machine, so re- relatively not that much. You're seeing like a a, a tripling of uh, 2.5 times in the insulin resistant group and then almost a quadrupling of muscle sensitivity um the ability for muscle to get rid of glucose post-exercise and the thing that got me though is like someone hears this message and they're like okay i'll be able to eat whatever i want after i train right (laughs) and then you look at these people who weren't even diabetic these are people with pre-diabetes and you look at what happens when they do a 75 gram oral glucose tolerance test after training and it's terrible yeah like glucose doesn't come down insulin doesn't come down actually i would say if you're if you're somebody who's trying to get away with gummy bears um as somebody who's not in great shape i do it the other way around i'd eat my gummy bears and then i'd go for a walk because there's some there's some good data on uh postprandial walking in people with type 2 diabetes dramatically reduces uh uh postprandial glucose excursion so i don't don't uh, earn the gummy bears first. Eat the gummy bears and then go for a walk. <laughs> then don't get don't get caught up in your computer and then not go for a walk. But so <laughs> so these guys these guys are these guys are pretty metabolically deranged. You're talking forty percent body fat, HbA1c. Their HbA1c's still aren't that bad. Only five point seven. So they're just pre diabetic. And this is this is seventy five grams after. This is crazy. After either doing high intensity endurance exercise or moderate intensity endurance exercise um, calibrated for 200 kcals. And you can see like these guys are pre-diabetic by definition. So their fasting is about 99 or whatever it is. And then this is over two hours. They're still not coming down. Yeah. And the thing that got me on this paper was their conclusion was exercise is so helpful. I'm like, really? It's so helpful. Like (laughs) these guys are still fucked. Like they're still, still terrible. So what this, what this tells me is that if you're, if you're pre-diabetic, just stay away from large doses of pure sugar like that. Right. I mean, that's got to be one of the main takeaways. You're not going to do well with large bolses of carbohydrates, especially alone, especially alone. Um, and so this idea, I think the one that's something that people need to get away from. If you are, you know, if you don't have, if you're past your personal threat, thresh, fat threshold for metabolic health, like exercise is not an excuse to drink three Gatorades. Like that's, it's not, it's, it's not, it's not going to work. Now on the other end of the spectrum, if you are, you know, if you're a guy and you're 11% body fat, yeah, you can probably get away with it whenever the fuck you want. Like that's, that's the problem is like, it probably doesn't matter that much because you, you have the system to put away this, you're metabolically flexible enough to put away this level of glucose. Yeah. 
And so that's just something that I found really, really interesting. And then if someone pulls the, you know, they pull the, the conclusion from the abstract of that paper, they're like, exercise helps with postprandial glucose. And then, then someone gets a hold of that and they're like, oh, yeah, this is when I eat my bagels. I'm like, no, you don't really get, there's no bagels. Um, there was there was this um there there was the 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 famous quote I think from from Charles Poliquin rest in peace um who he he said he all of his athletes had to had to earn their carbohydrates and he was like some of them uh you know I can't remember what he used but it was like get as many gummy bears as they want as they want and some of them get two licks of a date every six months and you know that's basically you've got to know where you are on that spectrum in terms of how you respond to carbohydrates like the be- and the best way is to test yourself figure it out um and then then you can sort of iterate as you go yeah so if you don't agree with us and you really you know and you really want to pound three Gatorades after you walked on the treadmill just test yourself uh the data won't lie. Just, you know, finger prick yourself every 30 minutes and, and see how high you get. See how high you ding the carnival hammer. Um, and you probably, you probably don't want to go above 140. You probably really, really don't want to go above 180. That's when you start spewing glucose into your urine. Oh, yeah, definitely. But let's just say if you can stay under 140, maybe you can have a sip of Gatorade. I don't know. <laughs> And, and I think the other thing that we need to talk about with this insulin, this whole insulin story is there's this idea that insulin is anabolic, like, but I think I love that you said that insulin is just more anti-catabolic because that's what we found. It, it, you know, it doesn't really muscle, it's not going to augment muscle protein synthesis once you get above 30 um, and then it's not going to matter. And, and, yeah. and, and then to, you got to go crazy high. We're talking like I think seven thousand like pharmacological levels of insulin to drive more muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, exactly. And so the this is a this is a cool paper. I think it's from like twenty ten. And so this is just doing the same thing, but looking at uh, glucose responses at forty grams of different protein sources. And so you're you're gonna see if we only got to get above thirty on a on an insulin measurement to kind of maximize our muscle protein synthesis response, we can see that whey is going to do that pretty easily. And then also any kind of, probably any kind of meat is going to get up there pretty easily in terms of basal insulin responses. And so that leads us to the next question is like, if you have ice cream, this is probably going to go even, is this, this is probably additive. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, well, you probably you don't have much protein in ice cream unless it's Halo Top or whatever, like some kind of protein ice cream. Protein <laughs> ice cream. Um, but yeah, so uh, the the fat fat seems to augment some of the insulin response to carbohydrates, or at least keep it at a sustained level. But what like do you mean you said, by that? So it, it keeps the glucose more level on the curve, or the uh, insulin keeps, more it keeps yeah, it keeps insulin higher. Uh, for slightly longer with the same amount of so you've you've dramatically increased the number of calories that come with it um so the insulin doesn't increase that much but you 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 have a longer tail to the curve uh but like you said uh you know there's a you only need basically a single a single spike and it can come back down um just like you know you have the the refractory period of muscle protein synthesis right that's that's kind of where we are currently so it's better to, to do this three or four times a day rather than continuously. Uh, so you, you don't need a prolonged spike. You just need it to come up 
enough to suppress uh, breakdown, and then and then you're going to be getting you know near maximal mu- muscle protein synthesis with just small doses of insulin, um, and then you know protein tailored to to body weight. Was it 0.05 grams per kilo per per meal? Yeah, 0. 0.4. I think 0. 0.4 grams per kilo. You do four, you're going to be at 1.6. 0. 0.5 would yeah. do the same thing. Yeah. The the interesting thing to me um, from the the protein insulin, the general population would probably do really really well with just eating protein after they train. Yeah. Like that's the play because yeah. you're gonna you're gonna maximize muscle protein synthesis. You don't need to recover glycogen because you know you're probably not training multiple times per day. So that's the only time that that would matter. Yeah. So there's there's really no reason for you to be putting carbohydrates in at that point in time just put them in with a meal when you're probably going to have a better glycemic response because you're going to have other macronutrients you're going to have fiber to dissipate it and then if you're metabolically healthy and you're just trying to get jacked you probably use that window to just get in because the the problem is if you're a weight loss client you're, it's a, it's a difficult problem, right? Weight loss client. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's hard to do long-term. And you got to eat less calories consistently over time, which is difficult. But if you want to gain muscle, just as difficult is you have to eat consistently too many calories over time. And people don't appreciate that. That is also really, really difficult. Yeah. And so that post-workout time then is if you are four times more insulin sensitive, it is potentially the time to ban carbohydrates the hardest to get them in. If you've got to get 600, 700 grams of carbohydrates in, that's probably the time to get 150 of them in. Would you agree? Uh, yeah. Um, but most of it, I mean, the most important thing is that you're just getting to- the total calories in, right? And then you may be slightly protected by the fact that you're in the post-exercise window in terms of glucose excursion. But in that scenario, you need a long, a, you know, optimally a long feeding window. Um, and you're just going to need three, four, five decent sized caloric events. And one of those is going to be post-workout. Just that's going to be a good opportunity to get in enough calories so that you remain in caloric excess. Yeah. So, you, so what you're saying there, Dr. Dr. Wood, is that someone shouldn't, who's trying to gain, they probably shouldn't intermittent fast and try to be paleo. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I've, so I've seen, I've seen a lot of um, CrossFitters and uh, obstacle course racers. So they're kind of partly endurance, but there's also a strength component, right? Um, who intermittent fast and they're low carb. Um, and, you know, it just doesn't, doesn't go too well. And it is worth saying that being on a mixed diet does seem to decrease the protein requirements to maintain muscle mass, right? So carbohydrates are partly protective of muscle mass because that insulin is anti-catabolic. So if you are, for some reason, trying to gain um, mass on a ketogenic diet or a low-carb diet, which, you know, it's not impossible, it's certainly possible, then you're probably going to need higher protein compared to if you're on a mixed diet. And I, I I agree. Like I've talked to Luis about this from Keto Gains too. I, I mechanistically think that there's not there's no reason that an advanced athlete couldn't gain muscle without carbohydrates. Yeah. I just I just think the problem is is that you're you've just lost ice cream, chips, you've just lost all hyper palatable food. And so, <laughs> so it's gonna be really, really hard. I think it's possible. I think it's one hundred percent possible. It's just yeah. gonna be a lot harder. It's hard. It's hard work. I've, I've just, for me, even to maintain mass on a low carb diet and 
or I've done periods of ketogenic diets. I just, I'm just not hungry. Like, I just can't. I just can't force the food down. Um, so some people can do it. You're right. It's just it's, it's hard work. But it's not. It's not a problem in terms of physiology. Like you can gain the muscle tissue. You just need to be in ex- like the same caloric excess and enough protein, right? But it's just. It's just harder. The the feasibility and the ability to get into that excess, I think, is just harder given the yeah. limitations of the diet. Yeah. Uh, and and we don't know. Like, would someone be healthier if they did that chronically and didn't have those? Ins- well, you're still going to have insulin excursions because yeah. you you got you got sufficient protein. You're just not going to blast it up to about probably a hundred or 150. Yeah. Um, and, and so. I don't know. I mean, based on the current, you know, the current ideas of how excess glucose, you know, basically damages pretty much any tissue in the body that you're willing to look at. Um, my thought w- would be that you might be protected against some of those those problems of being in a continuous caloric excess. Um, but, you know, we don't know. So, so to summarize this for the people, if you are you know, living keto because you think it's, if you're, you know, you're jacked out of your mind and you're living keto because you think it's going to make you live longer. You're making a bet. Uh, like you're sacrificing all the deliciousness of the world for, <laughs> for, for a bet that you have no idea if it will pay off. And we're never going to be probably be able to answer if it will pay off. Um, and so if you live to 90 and you live in a blue zone and, you, and it works for you, I hope so. And I hope you feel great about it. Um, but if it doesn't and you're out there eating chips and you're jacked out of your mind, please don't feel guilty about it. Just because you might, it's a, it's a lot easier. You have to, my analogy is like you have to bull strikes every day and, and you don't have, you can't miss a meal. Like I have guys, like if you miss breakfast, like we're done. We're probably done. We're definitely like, if you don't pick it up, you're done because you got to eat 4,000 calories in a day. And people don't really understand how hard, how difficult that is. Um, And so the, the big parameters for metabolic health, number one, body composition. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Okay. So if we got, if we got body composition, then, then number two, number two would probably be just, just moving enough. So once you have body composition, then you got to get, so you can't, you can't be skinny fat, you know, a guy and you're 17% body fat and, and you don't have a lot of muscle and you don't move. I think you're still at risk then from a metabolic health perspective. Would you agree? Yeah, so the yeah, the 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 perfect example of that is it's genetic condition, but it's called lipodystrophy, um, where people are super ripped because they don't make any fat tissue. Um, they just don't deposit fat and they have like type two diabetes from the outset. Because, because your fat tissue is your, like, it's your metabolic buffer, right? That's where things go when you have too much and where you can take things from when you have too little. These guys don't have any fat and they are insulin resistant straight away. So you can definitely be in that scenario where your fat tissue is really unhealthy for various reasons. And those are lifestyle based, they're partly genetic based. Um, and so you can still look skinny. That's your skinny fat, but you can still be um, you can still be in poor health metabolically, even if you're not, you know, you know, you're not super, super fat. Okay. And, and so what would be, what would be kind of your, your big messages to, cause this is a, this is a complex topic on yeah. insulin, everything, metabolic health while getting big. What would, what would be your advice to kind of those two different people? Um, so, so one being people who are just trying to 
just trying to maintain normal health and maintain like good metabolic health. Is that what? Yeah. The, the average the first group. Yeah. The average, the average person who, you know, is listening to this podcast and they, they think I'm weird and they, you know, they, they, they're after the minimum effective dose, which I think is a, is a 100% viable. I'm, I'm behind that. Like that is a smart thing to do. What I'm doing yeah. is incredibly stupid, right? Yeah. So they're going to train twice a week. Um, they want to spend time with their kids. They have other hobbies. Um, and, and they just want to, they want to get the most for the, for the least. Yeah. So then those people are going to need to move frequently throughout the day. And that's th- just like walking, take the stairs, right? It only needs to be 20 or 30 minutes a day. It makes a huge difference. Um, sleep. They need to get seven to nine hours of sleep um, and have some kind of stress mitigation practice whatever and then minimize refined carbohydrates so if you want to we're talking talking about glucose excursions and insulin excursions refined carbohydrates are by far your worst enemy there um and then if you want to go one beyond that then i'd say refined fats and oils could make that a lot worse um but that's that's the main things like if you do all of those things that's your Pareto principle right your 80 20 rule that's going to get you by far most of the way um to to long-term health and if you do if people do want to if you know if those people are out to eat know that if you have if you do have a cupcake or something it's not going to kill you it's just like you probably you probably haven't built up the capacity to live your life on cupcakes yeah which leads us to the second population so people who want to get maximum like more bigger and more stronger as much as possible so <clears throat> then all the other stuff still applies, right? You know, sleep is important. Stress is important. Like obviously your training frequency um, and programming become even more important. Then you need to be in a caloric excess. Um, I think what we talked about earlier was the fact that if you are trying to do that whilst minimizing fat gain, then probably having carbohydrates as your main energy source is the safest in terms of minimizing the amount of fat that you you deposit um and they'd like keeping what fat grams basically what you said is basically like a gram a gram per kilo per day something like that um and then if you have some eye on long-term health this is kind of like the big if is that can you do that with uh by going the other way reducing carbohydrates increasing protein um, and then making fat your main energy source. Um, and guys like Luis from Keto Gains are definitely leading the way there and showing that it's possible. Um, whether that improves long-term health, uh, because you've already built this great buffer of having good body composition and good muscle tissue, um, and you're taking care of the other lifestyle stuff like sleep and stress, um, we don't know. That's kind of a that's kind of a maybe, right? Well, maybe one day we'll figure it out, but we're certainly not there yet. So you, I, I would say that. If you're if you're playing that game, if you're hammering the carbohydrate game, just make sure that you're probably staying under 140. And I think yeah. that I think that because a lot of people we have there's naive realism is a thing. Like we think we are we're always going to think we're more jacked than we are. We're always going to think that we're more insulin sensitive than we are. I'm so, more special. Yeah, yeah we're always going to th- we're always going <laughs> to think that type of stuff, it's, and it's never going to be our fault. Um, and so just just check yourself with data, and I I think that we the data that we do have on this stuff is in pretty untrained populations like yes they're trained for a year right so 
one of the things that I, one of the things that I that I think that we want to do in the future, and it's not that hard of a study. Like these studies, these are acute trials. Like these are so. Yeah. I, I would say that we're going to have this done inside of a year. Is have have you know have guys who have an FMI over thir- thir- 23 or 24. You know they're well they're well muscled, been training for a decade, and you know let's see what happens when we hammer them with 40 grams of protein and 120 grams of carbohydrates. Because I'd be I'd be really interested to see what that insulin spike would be like in that population post post exercise. Yeah, and how long it lasts for? Yeah, because you know you could just what what's your what would you be your, what would be your hypothesis there? So my hypothesis is that in the because those people will have a large a larger potential amount of non-insulin mediated glucose uptake, um, they will have a smaller insulin spike to begin with, and it should come down more rapidly. What you'd want to do is maybe compare them to people of a similar weight who don't have the same body composition, right? Who are maybe an average amount of, you know, of, of uh, fat, so you know, 20% or something like that in males, maybe 25 to 30% in females. Um, that, would be, that would maybe give you a benchmark in terms of how much that, that extra muscle tissue is, is, is improving things. Got it. I think about that. I'm thinking about this on the fly, but that, that would, that would, that would uh, potentially support that hypothesis to an extent. Yeah. And so my, my idea was, let's just talk study design on this in front of everyone, which is, which is fun. So my idea was you have them, you, you test that population when fasting. So no, not training, just see what happens when you pound them with 40 grams of carbohydrate or 40 grams of protein, 120 grams of carbs, whatever it is. Do you think that we should, if not, not really a matter of if, but when, when we run this study, do you think we should go like grams per kilogram or should we just go with like, doesn't matter who it is. You're all getting 120 grams. It's probably fair to go grams per kilogram, right? So you do 0.4 or 0.5 grams per kilo of protein. And then maybe, are we talking like 1.5 grams per kilo of carbohydrate? Something like that, right? Those are in the, the, bent, the, the area that you've been talking about. So something like that is probably fair. Um, or else you have to do some extrapolation in terms of amount of, of body tissue uh, available to take things up. Although, Maybe, you know, alternatively, you give everybody a fixed amount and then the variable, the variable becomes total fat mass, total fat-free mass. And then you look at whether that interacts with, with, the, with the speed of uptake. So that's, that's, all, that's um, similarly interesting. And then you can, within the same population, you can, you can create um, a curve in terms of how much those different things um, uh, affect, affect that. So if you know people's, uh, you know, um, fat free mass and fat mass and you know their body mass and you know roughly how much of each there is to dispose into so maybe even within the trained population you can see how much differing um, uh, amount of fat tissue or muscle tissue would would affect from a fixed dose so maybe a fixed maybe a fixed dose is more interesting this is why <laughs> this is why talking uh, study design um, uh, while people are listening is is interesting and they're probably the thing is if you get a very homogenous population to start this study, they're probably not going to be that different. We're talking like, you know, one guy's going to be seventy-five kilos, the other guy's going to be ninety. So we're not talking like it would be too crazy of a difference as far as weights. The so my idea was be, if you have if you have men and women, then you'll you'll have some differing amounts of 
uh, fat tissue. And I think I think if you bring females in the mix, I think then for sure you have to do grams per kilogram. I think the more heterogeneous our population is, the, then I think we have to go. That that wouldn't be fair. That would because if you average that value, I think you're going to have it's going to be. You'd have to look at individual data. Then I think we'd have to have a more. I think I think you probably run two different studies. I think in, in that in that sense, I think you run a, a female study and you run a male study, um, which would be which would be interesting because females just naturally, I think they're going to not be able to put as they're not going to be able to put away the same amount of carbohydrates. But I don't know if they would per be able, per per per, exactly. per kilo of body mass. I think they'll put away more. You think they'll put? Why yeah. would you? Why would you? Because there is there is some data from from female athletes that suggests they are more carbohydrate tolerant than males. Yes, and they do. They're gly, they're glucose sparing too, right? Yeah. So uh, when it when it comes to most things in terms of ability to gain gain strength, mass, um, number of repetitions that they can uh, perform at a given percentages of one rep max. Um, you know, amount of carbohydrate and stuff they can tolerate. Like women are just better than men for most of those things. Um, mm-hmm. Once, once, once you once you adjust for things like uh, absolute body mass or body size. Yeah, because they have to carry more body fat just because they're they're females. Yeah, uh, that'd be so. So I think if you maybe you even equate it per kilogram of fat. If you want to be, if we want to get a heterogeneous jack population you maybe you do it per grant like per kilo of muscle mass yeah and yeah, then yeah. You, you do it that way and so my idea was you you test them all fasted not trained and then you test it all you test them all after training immediately after training and then your idea was and actually what one of these studies did was they waited an hour yeah and you, you wait for that sympathetic response to come down and then you initiate the the feed um, so that it was, it would, it wouldn't be that hard. You'd only need, you'd only need essentially three days. I, do you think you need a washout period? Like if you like, no, I mean, if you had enough people, you'd, um, you just change the order, right? So some people do fasted on the first day. Some people do post immediately post exercise on the second day and then delayed on the third day. And then you mix up the order. Uh, so you remove the order, you know, the order effect. Um, but if you, if you had, I don't know, 20 to 24 people in total, you could probably do that. Um, like six to eight per, per, t- per type of, um, order. That'd be, so that would be, that's probably the best way for us to start this research would be that kind of acute trial. Yeah. Um, that would probably cost, what do you what do you think that costs in the states for so for the for the blood tests you're um so uh, if you're doing an oral glucose tolerance test with insulin um you're looking at insulins yeah you're probably you can i think uh some companies bundle them together it's less than two hundred dollars um so you're probably looking at five to six hundred dollars per person um what's that you could do it for less than 10 grand uh, for the blood testing um yeah as long as everybody else gives their time and uh stuff for free um you, you have a place where you can get people to do blood draws do the workouts standardize those yeah it's wouldn't be that expensive all you're paying for is is the is the testing yeah i, I looked at it we can we can actually get somebody in costa rica to come to flow it's, it's, it's surprising it's like it's like we're gonna have a hypertrophy camp or something 
Uh, and this, and this it's, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like we're working on this. Uh, and so I, so I've actually got it to $160 for a seven point oral glucose tolerance test, you know, in this, in this, in this doctor will come and she will take our blood. Um, she will vampire us for three days in a row and it only costs us $50 for her to show up and do this. Um, That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I mean, I can, we can make it happen. It's just, can we get the people? And I think we can. And then are they willing to train, you know, six days, three days in a row and, and figure this stuff out for us? Uh, and I, I think the answer is, I think the answer is yes, but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. I think, um, I think this is the start of some super interesting uh, bro research in the jungle. Um, and- <laughs> It's, but you know, you're particularly whether you're trying to maximize like muscle protein synthesis and muscle gain at an acute time point, or trying to think about how this stuff affects your long-term health, right? This is, this is pertinent to both of those questions. So I think anybody who's interested in muscle mass and, you know, both short-term and long-term health and performance, you know, this, this is definitely a question worth asking. Yeah. And and also just to have your individual data. Like yeah. you, you see like, okay, when I'm, you know, when it's an off day, I mean, I don't get 150 grams of gummy bears because, <laughs> I, because I'm pissing sugar. Right. Yeah. But you know, when I'm running 30 sets to failure, I can eat whatever I want. And, and but maybe, maybe that's not true either. So yeah. it, it, like just seeing your own individual data. And I know seeing the CGM data for me was, was really interesting. Like when I'm stressed, I got to clean it up. Like it's, it's, it's really like, it's super interesting to see some of that data and just be able to, to apply it. Um, and so where do you have, where do you put your, where do you put your, um, CGM, um, probe? Back of the tricep. Does that, does it interfere with any of the stuff in the gym? Uh, so let's, let's talk about like, if people do want to do types of CGM stuff, cause I've done a ton of it. Um, you have to be really, really careful uh, with the because there's CGM is not looking at blood; it's looking at yeah. interst- it's looking at interstitial fluid. So you're gonna have you're gonna have a lag time, and then you need to understand that these things are designed for diabetics. They are extremely imprecise and extremely inaccurate inside of normal ranges. Like there, those this tech is only after two things: it's only after looking at you going way too high or you going deathly low. That's what is. That's what it's geared towards. So you're essentially just looking for trends. And and what we've been able to pick up is, you know, we had this guy who was we tra- he was eating rice cakes after he trained, and he was popping over over 200, but he would eat that same amount of carbohydrates and rice with a meal, and he would be he would be fine. He just couldn't have carbohydrates alone. Um, and and so the other thing for me, you'll start to see like you can even you can even play with it like. We've we've had guys, you know, have seven try because the Zevi study showed us that different types of carbohydrates are like di- react differently with different people. So yeah. you can kind of you can standardize it, and you can have you know this day I ate, I ate seventy five grams of sweet potato. This game standardize it by carbohydrate, but then change the source and see what maybe what source works best for you. Yeah. Um, and probably honestly, if you're jacked, it's not going to matter inside of a meal. It's just kind of when you're eating those carbohydrates alone. Uh, I I had a guy eat only ice cream, like the entire day. He ate only ice cream. Never went over one twenty. Never. <laughs> Never. It, like, That's amazing. He, like he ate four thousand calories probably of ice cream. It was nonsense. 
but he because it's a mixed it's essentially has fat and protein and yeah. carbohydrates it, so his, his insulin may have been his insulin may have been so hot really. so <laughs> hot. it was so anabolic <laughs> if you've been listening to this whole podcast you know that's not true that was a joke um so so that the other thing with cgms is you gotta so you implant them and they got a really cool one that sticks in i think that it's gonna take a surgical incision uh, I don't know if this one's like a 90 day one. So it's going to go under the skin. The problem with a lot of the CGMs, like the, the freestyle Libre pro right now is, is uh, like Pat Davidson. He sweat, he sweat his off in eight hours. Like it was like, I was just watching him. Like it was, it was dinner and his, uh, like, cause obviously these things cost like $65. So I'm just plugging them in people and I'm just watching Pat sweat the first day, the whole day in the jungle. And then at dinner time, it's just like hanging on by thread. I'm like, Oh, we lost that one. Uh, <laughs> and so you're going to need, you're going to need some tegaderm to like kind of hold that. And he, I tegaderm him out, but he just sweated it out from the outside. So if you're in a super hot climate, I don't know that I, it's, you're going to need a lot of like sticky stuff to put over that. Um, but I, I honestly like, do I think it's worthwhile data for if you're very neurotic? I don't know. Um, I just, I, I don't know if it's a good idea. You, I would say like, if you're not popping over 140, we probably don't have a problem. Um, and so I've seen a lot of people get very, the, the, the population that this does seem to work really, really well in and the evidence is really, really high is for type two diabetics. Like they do, they do really well seeing this type of data. Um, like, look, you popped over 300 and you stared at a lollipop for 20 minutes. Let's not do that. Um, so I, I just don't like for the, for the average, if you're a physically active person, I don't know that that uh, data is going to add a lot of substance to what you're doing. Um, and if it does, it's probably a key that you're not as healthy as you think you are which, which could be, which could be helpful. Um, but I just, if it's going to lead to neuro neuroses, I would say if you're above, if you're under 120 for sure, like if you're just staying between 80 and 120 all day long and you're eating whatever you want, then we don't have a problem for sure. And then, then it's kind of like, if you want to gain, then I think you get to play this carbohydrate card without any kind of guilt. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would, uh, I'd start by just doing a get, you know, get a standard 20 buck glucometer from the pharmacy, test yourself 30 60 120 minutes after meals like you said with different carbohydrates that's probably enough for most people um you know when people get into the cg so that's more accurate yeah and the, the different cgms are, are differently accurate so the freestyle libre tends to underestimate glucose the g the dexcom g6 is is pretty good um if you can get a hold of it um that's like two they, g's though uh, no, you, uh, it kind of, it depends on, depends on your doctor and your insurance company. It can be a lot cheaper than that. Um, it can be, a, it can be a few hundred bucks. Um, but the, uh, the, the, but then you get, you get into things that we know spike glucose, but we also know are beneficial in the long term, like intent, like high intensity exercise. So if you go mm -hmm. sprinting or, you know, you do it, you know, you, you do some high rep or, you know, hard work in the gym, um, you know that you know your, your glucose is going to spike because of the sympathetic response. But we also know that long-term it's going to be better for blood sugar control. It's going to be better uh, for longevity and health. So you end up worrying about things that you know are beneficial just because they cause a blood glucose spike. So not everything that spikes glucose, um, you know, is a bad thing. So, so I definitely, I would focus on the postprandial window for most people rather than worrying about the CGM. Yeah. 
it's a lot cheaper. And, and in the States, it's a pain to get them too. So I would say the, the finger, you can just go to Walgreens right now and, and finger stick yourself after a meal. Like, yeah, you got to blood spoil your finger. Uh, if you do that, uh, I've done this so many times. You want to use the side of your dominant hand, like the side of your finger on your dominant hand, because your dominant hand gets more blood flow. Uh, it'll be pretty easy. Uh, and, and I think that's worthwhile data to get for people. Just don't be weird. <laughs> don't be yeah. weird. Like that's the, a good motto for life. I, I, or do be weird, Ben. It's done. It's done wonders for you. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> like hierarchy of needs. Uh, if, if someone's if, if someone's not gaining the first thing i'm looking at is effort in the gym effort in intent in then if if they're still not gaining the next thing i'm looking at is what is your total volume like are you are you even close to what we need to see gains then the next thing i'm looking at is i'm looking at total macros nutrition sleep type stuff and then and only then would i start going down these types of windows yeah if you're doing two sets of you know, squats a week and you're, you got 185 pounds on the bar and you're going for four reps. Like, uh, it depends on who you are, but I would make the, I would make the assumption that, that may, and you, the effort's probably not there. Um, and yeah. so though, that's just how I think about things. Um, where I, we've been, we could probably talk for a really, really long time <laughs> and we will. Yeah. Um, and we, and we, and in fact we do. Uh, just you don't have to listen to us. So, where where can people people find more about about you, Tom? Uh, yeah, the I've just started to use Instagram a bit. So I'm Dr. Tommy Wood on Instagram. I'm Dr. D- Wagner. Dr. Tommy Wood. What's, Dr. What's the... Tommy Wood. Okay. All, yeah. All in one. Um, very yeah. active. Very active handle. <laughs> I think I have like six total posts. <laughs> I'm working on it. Um, uh, 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 Twitter um at dr ragnar that's r-a-g-n-a-r um there'll be a website soon that's drragnar.com i'm just revamping it i used to do that when i was a phd student and it'll come back um and then um and then yeah then uh you, you can also find my bio on the uh the clean bulk protocol website on the uh costa rica Institute for Functional Medicine. <laughs> the, the worst website name of all time. <laughs> I have to, t- I have to write people my email, and it's like, yeah, you didn't think about that when you no, it sounded good when you registered it. It's all good. Uh, it's now it's Google optimized. Uh, no, no, for real. Uh, I, I refer people to to Tommy a ton, uh, and and his name legit, legitimately is Tommy Ragnar Wood. Correct. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, it couldn't be you couldn't have a cooler doctor name uh and and so i i legitimately like guys i've seen this i've seen this man on on a gurney for 11 (laughs) like 11 days um and and i have this doesn't this is not said lightly like so much respect for not only the level of knowledge and and the outlook that he has and how he goes about the processes of his life but also his resilience as a human being. Like I just have a, it, it was just, I've learned a ton from, um, from you getting bit by a snake. <laughs> and, and, and I, like it, seriously, like it was, it was probably this, this year, that event was, was the most growth that I've probably felt in my life. Just watching you and how you, how you dance through that, man. Um, so 
just want to let you know that I appreciate you and I'm really excited for, um, for the opportunity to, to answer some of these bro questions with you.